This is the third Sunday in Lent, and all of the readings are excellent, so I'm going to preach on all of them. Uh, I guess the major theme in at least two out of three is water, and uh, that, of course, will connect in some way to the whole idea of baptism, certainly for early Christians it did. And uh, the reading from Romans, uh, Paul talks about justification by faith, but I'm not going to speak about that today. I'm, he's also talking about what maturity in the Christian life may be like and uh, how that connects also to the suffering that we endure in big and small ways uh, and what it produces uh, in terms of uh, character, which is an important thing. Uh, when I get to it, um, some years ago I took a class from Dr. John Sanford, who is an Episcopal priest, but he's also a Jungian therapist. And he taught a class at the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley uh, about dreams and so on. And in the course of this, he said, one of the ways to understand character is living your life according to certain principles. I also remember that he, it was a wonderful line when somebody uh, raised their hand and said, uh, do you think that reincarnation is true? And he said, I hope not. <laughs> Dems my sentiments. So let's go through the readings now. Moses in Exodus. This is one of the murmuring texts. And you know how I love them. There are a whole lot of murmuring texts in the Hebrew Bible, certainly in the Pentateuch. Uh, and they're about the people of Israel being out of sorts with the leadership and looking now uh, in their, to their past through rose-colored glasses. What's new? Parish life, 1250 BCE, right? It's the, it's the whole idea of what it is. To comp now you got us out here. What are we going to do? So Moses is uh, contending with uh, some rebellion in the community and some complaining and kvetching. And why these murmuring passages are important is because they're really about leadership. And they're really to remind, I think, people who reflect on the biblical text um, how they understand the way they exercise leadership in big and small ways in their lives. And in some ways, I think Moses constitutes a model of good leadership uh, in his ability to um, work with the chronic anxiety of the people. In this story, oh, I thought I'd do this to remember my, my teacher, O.C. Edwards at Neshota House. It's not as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. And today, it's important in some ways, therefore, to be a student of the biblical text. And Exodus reminded me that, that perhaps just like you always hear my breathless tour of the two-source theory, the synoptic theory in the New Testament, uh, you should probably know a little something about the four-source theory of the Pentateuch, or the documentary hypothesis, as it's called uh, in biblical scholarship. This was actually, in terms of the history of biblical scholarship, the first location for when people began to read the Bible and say, we need to understand some of the 
historical issues involved in all of this and where these texts came from and so forth. So uh, the, the documentary hypothesis has to do with the fact that the first five books of the Old Testament uh, are from four sources. The Yahwist source, the Eloist source, the Priestly source, and the Deuteronomist, Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic source, if that's the right way to say it. In other words, these are the traditions that uh, were part, that, that were oral, written down, and in the Babylonian captivity when uh, the, 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 the Torah was being written, uh, they used these sources in order to put together uh, the first five books of the, what we call the Old Testament. So in each of these books, you will see some of these sources present, or all of them, some in greater strength than others, depending on the book. I would guess Deuteronomy would be uh, pretty much the Deuteronomist the writing, right? But today we hear from the priestly source, and we also hear from the Yahwist source, mainly the Yahwist source. But the priestly so how do you know these things? Well, the priests are interested in geography and location and ritual and the way you do all these kinds of things. And the Yahwists are the ones who have to do with uh, the God Yahweh, the one God, and all of the ways in which we describe God in a kind of um, anthropomorphic sense, in a kind of sense where God comes down and, you know, closes the door of the ark when Noah gets in it and so forth, where the Eloist source is the, is the one that talks about God on the mountain in the cloud, sort of in the, you know, the, the mystical uh, expression of the Godhead and so forth. So we hear from those sources today. This is just information you can keep on ice in a major thing. Whenever you read a commentary to prepare your sermons, uh, and it's from the Pentateuch, usually they'll tell you where, what the sources are for, these, for, the, for this biblical text. So in Exodus, we have Moses. There's some, actually some mistakes, too, because uh, you can tell that a later tradition has come in here because Moses strikes the rock at Horeb, and Horeb isn't anywhere near where they are in Masa and Mirabah and Rephidim and all this sort of stuff. It's somewhere else. So there's a way to uh, understand that the priestly source wanted him to be at Horeb to strike the rock because it's important uh, for their developed understanding of, of who they are and their religious cult. Anyway, Moses has got these people. He's beside himself. He tells God he doesn't know what to do and how he's going to handle all of this. And as I mentioned to you, they have looked back now to their past, to their bondage in Egypt, and they're looking at it through rose-colored glasses. And now they're out here and they're, they're worried about, um, you know, dying of thirst. They're all mad at Moses because he's brought them out here and they're complaining and they're in a situation. So God says, here's what you do. You take you and some of the elders and you go out ahead of the people. You go out ahead of them. You lead them. And you go to the place where I tell you and you take the staff that you used when you struck the Nile and you strike the rock that I told you to strike. And what comes out, of course, is an inexhaustible supply of living water, which Christian people will look back on uh, in the early church as a type for baptism. 
But here's what Moses always does as a leader. He refocuses the attention of the people from the place of remembered good times to the future to a place where they will receive a new self-definition, a deeper and fuller understanding of God's will and purpose for them, and a revivified uh, commitment to the promises of God. So he always seems to do this and to focus their attention. Sometimes on him, he will say, you look at me, you know, when the calf got destroyed. You look at me, and now we're going to go here. And the people now begin to follow, and they begin to see that uh, this is something that, uh, in the midst of their rebellion, that they can do. There's two points in all these murmuring texts. The first one is that the people are rebellious. You know, we talked a little bit about, in a funny sense, a few Weeks ago, um, Father Cockrell mentioned this. Jesus gets tempted in the wilderness. And just like the, the people were in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. But what we read in the biblical text is that, as we move forward is that Jesus isn't just tempted in the wilderness. He, this will come up for him again. And it comes up for all of us. So that means that in some way there needs to be some sense of uh, acceptance that uh, uh, belly aching and uh, anxiety and complaining uh, come with the territory. So we need to know all the time about how we, in fact, uh, remain non-anxious in the middle of that reality. So it's always a good, it's always a good lesson uh, when we think about that and how Moses uh, seems to have operated uh, with all these recurring things. That we learn from the murmuring text. This comes up again more than once. But what we also learn is that in each one of these, God is gracious. In each one of these, God is steadfast. In each one of these, God is faithful, even though we are fickle. And he remains constant. So when we would read that text as Christian people in 2011... It might be a, 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 for us to make a meditation on God's faithfulness. And if we, if, if we know that God is faithful and isn't be a cutter and a runner, then maybe we in our own life and in our own relationships can learn how to do that and be better at it, about being faithful, about developing our character, living your life according to certain principles. All today in Romans, Romans 5, 1 to 11, I heard a preacher say a while back, this is happy Paul. <laughs> Which is, you know, uh, this may seem for some of you an oxymoron, I don't know. But <laughs> happy Paul. And he's talking about, since we are justified by faith, you know, this is one of the cornerstones of uh, Reformation theology. But I'm more interested in what he says afterwards, after that, because he's talking about uh, our response to this connection with God we have. Uh, there's a, a substantial amount of biblical scholarship now, a Pauline scholarship, that has been around for maybe 30, 
or 35 years that might that suggests that justification by faith is not the centerpiece of Paul's theology, but the centerpiece is something they call participation in Christ. And he talks about that today in addition to being justified. In other words, that you and I participate in the promises of God. Jesus is the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and maturity. And he's giving us some things today that may help us understand this. And one of them, which is hard because we don't like to focus or concentrate on it, but, you know, it comes up just like complaining and kvetching in, in the reading from the Old Testament. So does suffering and adversity. And you can uh, describe suffering any way you want. We have the, the um, horrific suffering that we all know about and some of us have experienced but we also know what it's like to be stuck in traffic, you know, and that's suffering. There's no doubt about it. So there's, the, he's talking about what, what, it, what is produced. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So the processes of the Spirit at work in each of us brings peace, hope, and participation in the risen life in Christ. And so when we center ourselves in God, this, what that means in one sense is being recollected and clear thinking about what it is you're doing and who you are and how you proceed. And we access that as Christian people on a weekly basis through the church's sacramental life. The tradition with a capital T says to us that this is one of the ways that we have access to God's grace, one of the ways that we participate in Christ dwelling in us through uh, the bread and the wine at the Eucharist, for example, and through the baptismal covenant, through our own baptisms, that living into those promises uh, produces uh, hope, produces peace, and produces participation in Christ. So Paul tells us today that some of the difficulties that we're going to go through uh, can be character-building. It's not very much fun, is it, when you're going through it to have somebody tell you that? You know, say, thank you very much. You know, so sometimes you see that uh, in hindsight. But it's worth mentioning in any case because the testimony of people uh, is that that does in fact occur. Some of us know about suffering that is not redemptive. And so when we think about that, it may, it's a tough not to crack, but we also know that uh, people are um, somehow strengthened by uh, the adversity that they face going through it. You don't go over it, up, around, under, you got to go through it. And that perhaps is the most uh, difficult but important lesson. I wish that I could uh, live my life completely uh, avoiding suffering. And some people try to do it, you know. And when it comes to them, then they appear, as Abraham Lincoln said about one of his generals after an important battle, he looked like a duck hit over the head. You know, oh, you mean what? You know, what was that all about? 
So maybe Paul says, you know, being clear about what you, what you really are going through may be part of the character building process. You heard a long gospel Mother McNeil read to you from uh, John, the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. It's famous. It's an embarrassment of riches for the preacher. But it's also about the living water, which means it connects us to the baptismal theme of Lent. It connects us to, uh, to repentance and reconciliation and clean motives, which is part of the the overall uh, theme of the Lenten season. Jesus, here's the, you know, situation on the ground. The Samaritans are the people who didn't go, weren't taken to Babylon in the Babylonian captivity. They stayed behind. And during the period of the Babylonian captivity, what we call Judaism uh, went in a direction, and the Samaritans went in a direction. So by the time of the return, by the time of Jesus, the Samaritans and the Jews were not just dissimilar, they were at enmity with one another. It is very unusual that he's even in Samaria and doing anything uh, in Samaria at all. The Samaritans believe that... um, The sacred site is Mount Gerizim. They accept only the first five books of the Old Testament, none of the other writings in uh, in the Hebrew Bible, and probably none of the um, uh, of the the tradition, you know, uh, of the rabbis and all of that sort of thing. So there's there are differences and there's hostility. There are still Samaritans around, and uh, they practice a certain form of of. religion, uh, but it is different than Judaism. Jesus is at this well, and here I suspect if we were on the ground and were sensitive to what was going on, first of all, this woman is not very respectable. She also is drawing water at the wrong time of day, and w- w- what she's doing there is, a, is a, you know, noon, no, it's the early morning when that's done. Uh, a Jew would not take a, a ladle of water from a Samaritan. Uh, they do not believe the Samaritans have any ritual purity of any kind. So the idea that he's sitting there talking to her from that basis, let alone she's a woman, was uh, a very you know, surprising and shocking to a great many people. He describes to her several things. One of my favorite lines in the whole thing is, um, go call your husband. She says, uh, I, I have no husband. He said, you're correct to say that you have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the man you are with now is not your husband. And she says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> I read a commentary this week that says buried in this uh, that uh, we wouldn't know, we probably can't ever really figure out is uh, that is symbolic in the story of the differences between Samaritans and Jews and the five husbands could have something to do with the five you know so it's, it can get very murky. 
But Jesus tells her in the Greek text, he'd speak to her about the living water that he's going to give her. And the, the word that is used is the water that comes from an inexhaustible source, a fresh flowing spring. So it is, it is the water that is not just for slaking physical thirst, but spiritual thirst uh, as well. I think in John's gospel, this, one of the reasons this is here is that it is um, there for d- describing how a person comes to believe in Jesus. And the Samaritan woman comes to believe uh, in him through this process. Being accepted and received in one's vulnerable, sinful, or shameful state. Being listened to and taken seriously, though the listener knows all the facts. Having one's deepest hunger fed, being loved for who one is, and invited to become greater. Sharing one's experience with others who respond, and becoming then part of a community of believers. And in this story, you see this process at work with the Samaritan woman when she then goes uh, back to the town. And they come out to see Jesus. And now they don't just believe her. They believe because they've seen him and heard him. And so they, too, have come to believe. So I suppose in terms of uh, Lent, This has something to do with the way in which we think about reconverting ourselves, you know, repentance, looking at things in a new way. It may have something to do with the processes of reconciliation in our lives and how we understand that. I expect this woman had to do a certain amount of reflection on her own personal history. King, well, not King David, he didn't, but Psalm 51, which is a great psalm that's read during Lent, it's, it's all about the processes of conversion. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And it describes something that some of the writers on the spiritual life in the great tradition have talked about in terms of their own conversion. Uh, St. Augustine is probably the most dramatic example. One has a disturbing or challenging experience which compels them to reflect on their own personal history. And that leads them to understand that they are not doing this alone, but that there is a presence with them in this process, we say God. And finally, in the conversion process, you then come to uh, gratitude for this process at work in you and you see and accept the transformation that is taking place. So those are the processes of conversion in your life. And they don't happen to people just once. You know, they happen to us in, in, in uh, uh, more than once. And also sometimes one or more of those things we may do and not the other ones all together at the same time. You know. So for example, like in the recovery movement, when, 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 they, when it is described to take a searching and fearless moral inventory, that may have something to do with uh, the way in which you look at your own personal history. You know, 
not for the purpose of navel-gazing or wallowing in your own shortcomings, but for seeing how God's transformative work can uh, be present to you. And so that is always pro part of the conversion process, but you, that may be done uh, alone without uh, having had all of a sudden an experience where you're knocked off your pins that Augustine describes, you know. You don't necessarily have to have that, although often people do. So this week, think like uh, the Samaritan. First of all, see, if you're looking back in any way in your life to the place of remembered good times, uh, realize that that's not always the best posture. You need to look forward, right? And what we learn from Exodus is that God is always present to you in the process, even if you're complaining, you don't believe God's there, you don't care whether God's there, and you're not sh sure anyway. So that that's something that we can hold to, and that we can look to a place where we receive a new self-understanding, a deeper uh, and clearer idea of what God's purposes are for each of us. And you hear me say to you all the time that uh, you are part of God's plan. <clears throat> God needs you for the fulfillment of God, his plan for the cosmos. And so remember that. Remember, like the Samaritan woman, that you were unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven. And that default position then enables you to be an instrument of God's hope, an instrument of God's peace, and to share with others your greatest place of safety and assurance. Amen.